Thank you, Rob. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Um, I was just talking to Albert before the service, and he was a bit disappointed that the Christmas pudding event was only for ladies. And I said to him, no, 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 mate. The ladies make them. We eat them. So me and Albert are going to enjoy some Christmas pudding uh, after the ladies make them on Friday. So uh, it is for everyone, really, but it's nice for the ladies to be meeting together and doing that. We're excited today uh, to be beginning a new Christmas series, which we've entitled This Changes Everything. Hopefully you know by now that the this, in inverted commas, is the birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and I suppose we're making the bold claim that the birth of Jesus is the most significant event in human history. Over the next four weeks, we're going to think about four different ways in which the birth of Jesus changes everything. And this afternoon, our first focus will be on the idea that the birth of Jesus in this world is supremely impactful because it's like an explosion of light in a dark world. Jesus Christ himself is the light in our darkness. I suppose if if there was a group of aliens who came to planet Earth during the Christmas season, I think you, you could forgive them for thinking that Christmas is some kind of strange festival of lights. Everywhere you look, there's twinkly lights. You go outside this church and there's twinkly lights in the courtyard in front of the town hall there. If you come to my house, you'll see trees outside of our house with twinkly lights on. This year, like every year, we've been in the loft. Where did we put those lights? We find them and we bring down the loft ladder, a large box of tangled up wires and lights. Every year we think, why don't we wrap them around a piece of cardboard? Because they're all tied in knots. And then we finally unstraighten them, we plug them in and with bated breath and nothing happens. When we put them away, they were working. What happens to Christmas lights when you put them in the loft? Do they hibernate? Does does something eat them? I don't know. We've spent a small fortune over the years on Christmas lights, despite the fact that we don't understand them because we love them. And it's nice to come home and see the twinkly lights on the trees. One of the reasons that we celebrate Christmas, when we do, this time of year, is actually to do with light. You'll know that the shortest day of the year is 21st of December. The shortest day of the year. Some bright spark once realised that every year the sun seems to be like catching the flu and going down in decline. And then there comes a day, the 21st of December, when the sun turns a corner, I don't know whether it went to the doctors and got some like flu jab, but the sun turns a corner, starts to wake up, 
and come back to life again. Some bright spot once realised that. And so, people celebrated the winter, the winter, the winter solstice. Pagan festivals of light celebrating the fact that the sun in our sky seems unconquerable. Every year it looks like it's dying and then it comes back to life. It isn't a massive stretch, is it, to see why early Christians filled this time of year with new meaning and used this time of year, festival of light, to proclaim Christ as the real, true, unconquerable Son. S-O-N, not S-U-N. We want light to shine in our darkness, don't we? We don't want the lights to go out and the darkness to win, do we? I think it's fair to say that we all want the light to overcome the darkness. Came across a sweet story this week of a couple who took their kids. Their son was 11 years old and their daughter was 7 years old. And they took them to visit some underground caves. I'm sure we've all done it. And you get to that point in the tour, the deepest point in the cavern, and the tour guide makes everyone stop and turns off the lights. I used to work in a coal mine and it fascinated me. You can't even say that your eyes would get used to it because there literally is no light underground. And the little girl who was seven years old enveloped in this darkness she was frightened and she began to cry and immediately her older brother was heard to say don't cry somebody here knows how to turn the lights back on in a sense this is the simple message of the Christmas gospel Christian gospel even when the darkness seems overwhelming even suffocating, there is someone who knows how to turn on the lights. Many of the carols we sing at Christmas are full of this kind of imagery, aren't they? Apparently, the most famous Christmas carol in the world, I don't know how they work this out, they never ask me, is Silent Night, apparently. And there's apparently a legend that the minister of a church in Germany wrote it in 1818 because the church organ broke down on Christmas Eve and they didn't know what else to sing. So he wrote Silent Night. It's a legend. I don't know if it's true. But one of the verses in Silent Night says, Silent Night, Holy Night, Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. It all sounds very lovely, doesn't it, and romantic. But this, this idea is a major theme in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there were prophets like Isaiah, 
who foretold or predicted the birth of Jesus. And often the prophets would describe the birth of Jesus in the world as in terms of light dispelling darkness. I, I didn't know we were going to do this because I haven't planned today's service, but we read at the beginning Isaiah chapter 9. And um, here's what it says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Why? Well, just a few verses later, the prophet says, it's because a child's been born. For unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. That's what made the light come on in the darkness. And Isaiah goes on, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. He will reign on King David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal, that I love that word, zeal, the enthusiasm, the passion, the zeal of God Almighty will accomplish this. These words were written 700 years before Jesus was born. And the prophet is saying that when he's born, the light will come on. And it'll stay on. And the darkness will never overcome it. When Jesus was born, centuries later, his parents, like good Jewish parents, they went to Jerusalem and they presented Jesus in the temple when he was eight days old. And they were as surprised as anyone to find a godly, elderly gentleman in the temple. Luke tells us in his gospel, this man was called Simeon. Luke tells us that he was filled with the Spirit of God. He had spiritual insight to see what was really happening. And as he took the eight-day-old baby Jesus in his arms, he said basically that he could now die in peace because his own eyes had seen the salvation that God had been preparing for the world for centuries. And then he describes to Mary and Joseph, the baby Jesus, and says he will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That is to say, the light has come on for the whole world. In other words, this child is the one. He himself is the one that we've all been waiting for. All of our deepest yearnings are bound up in this child. And with his birth, the light has finally come on. Centuries of shadows and darkness are dispelled. This child changes everything. You'll know perhaps that later on in John's Gospel, Jesus himself would later say, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is truly staggering, isn't it? Any human being, there have been some great heroes in human history. None of them stood up and said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Jesus never went to university. He never ran for parliament. He never owned a company. He hardly ever even left his own neighborhood. Yet he claimed to be the light of the whole world. So this idea of the birth of Jesus being understood as light, dispelling our darkness, is a big Christmas theme. But I want to help you this afternoon. How does this connect to us? What difference does it make? In what sense can we say that the birth of Jesus is the light in my darkness? And in what sense can you say that the birth of Christ is the light in your darkness? What I want to try and do this afternoon is give you three reasons why this is true. And I want you to know that this is not trivial. I, I don't know how to say this. I, in my heart this week, there, I, there, there are three significant things that I want to get across to you. And I've been wondering all week how to do it. My family know because I've been talking to them about it. Um, so we're going to go simple. And I'm going to frame these ideas as three basic questions. And um, they're on the program. They're pretty simple. What's the point? What's the problem? What's the potential? I've, I've been in work a little bit this week. Um, and when these questions dawned on me, it, it made me realize that we're often, without realizing that, asking these kind of questions at work. Why do we do stuff? How do we fix problems? Where are we going with this? Are we making a difference or is this a waste of time? But of course, the, these questions are ultimate questions about life, I think. What's the point? Do our lives ultimately, actually, mean anything? What's the problem? Why, why is it that so often life feels broken? This is a question of solutions. And what's the potential? What hope is there that life will work? Where is my life going? This, this is a question of significance. So you, you will think about these questions, right, as well? Sometimes we, we're busy and maybe we suppress them, but the, the, these questions are crucial questions. Does life have meaning? Does anyone have answers? And is there any real hope that my life counts for something? 
How then is the birth of Jesus in the world a light in these three ways? What, what I'd like us to do, the first two, we're going to go to John chapter 1 that Rob read to us a few minutes ago. And for the third one, we're going to try and do something a little bit different. So I'll tell you about that at the end if we get through the first two and you're all well behaved. So the first two, John chapter 1. What's the point? Um, I should just say that John's gospel is quite unique. There are four gospels, you know this, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Different perspectives, but I warn you now that the gospel of John is different. Cosmic. Uh, have you been watching The Apprentice? Is anyone there? Yeah. I was watching The Apprentice this week. I don't know what it is about The Apprentice. It's such a rubbish show, but it's so compelling. Uh, someone could write a book on that. We like to watch it in our house. I was watching The Apprentice this week, and on the after show, they always have the person who was just fired on the after show. And then they talk to them and they show them what the other contestants who were still in the programme said about them after they were fired. And this week, a girl got fired and one of her housemates said, she was deep. I thought that was a great comment. They've lived in a house for a few days doing tasks together and that was what one of her housemates said about her. She was deep. I think that's true for John. John was possibly Jesus' best friend. But he's deep. And I don't mean to put you off by that as if John is too hard to understand. I don't mean that at all. It is more that John is the kind of person who doesn't just tell you what happened. John is always thinking about why did that happen John's gospel is all about the why behind the what. So true to form here, John begins his gospel, not in Bethlehem, but in eternity. What a place to start. Way back, John's mind goes way back to before even creation was created. John starts his gospel like the Bible itself, with the words... In the beginning, in the beginning, John says, was the word. Greek philosophers around and before the time of Jesus debated often whether life had any meaning. And they used the Greek word, the word is logos, and we translate the word logos as word. Bit confusing. Logos. The, the Greek philosophers were asking, what is the logos? What is the rationale? What is the logic? What is the underlying principle? What is the meaning and the idea behind everything that we can see and experience? What is that logos? What is that word? Some thinkers, Greek ones amongst them, have concluded that there is no ultimate meaning but we have to live as if there is in order to function. 
There's lots of people have ideas about this. I'm sure you do too. Some people lean towards science and focus on the material nature of the world. We are molecules. This is biological. Life is about logic and facts. There's no ultimate transcendent meaning. Other people go to the opposite extreme and lean towards a more spiritual view. They want to feel the force. The for- May the force be with you. For them, nature has this vague, impersonal wonder about it. I think the truth is that whether you believe there is no God or whether you believe that God is somehow nature, the underlying issue is that in both cases, there's nothing personal out there. John here turns all of that upside down with the most staggering phrases. For John, the ultimate word is not a cold fact or a mysterious impersonal force. The word is actually a person. In other words, the meaning behind everything The reality behind every other reality is not an it or a thing or even an idea. It is a he. If you ask John, hey John, you were Jesus' best friend, what's the point, mate? I think John might answer, in the beginning was the point and the point was with God. And the point was God. Because the point and the meaning behind all other meaning is Jesus Christ himself. So for John, life isn't random and meaningless. He is telling us that the ultimate foundation of all things is Christ. Let me just uh, fill that out. John is actually telling us that the ultimate foundation of all things is a loving relationship that spills over in joyful creativity. Loving relationship. That little word with in verse 1 is very, very important. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And this Word was God. For John, there is relationship at the very heart of reality. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, but you have to remember that John is a Jew. And you, 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 you will know that Jews were and are fiercely monotheistic. That means there is one God 
And yet here's John talking about the word being God and being with God. From before time, for eternal ages, the Son has looked into the Father's face. And the Father has looked into the Son's face. This little word with means face to face. They have known each other, trusted each other, loved each other, admired each other, and given themselves to each other without limit for eternal ages. Sometimes, when I'm talking with parents about their kids, I might, I might say, I hesitate to talk to parents about their kids. Real damage can be done. We're all very sensitive, aren't we, about our parenting. But I'll, I'll often say, what is it that children need more than anything else? There's something for you to think about as a bit of homework. What is it that children need more than anything else? Often, we might say, well, they need to know that they're loved. That's true, of course, but actually, in an even deeper way, I I think one of, if not the most important thing a child needs to know is that their two parents love one another. One of the saddest things in our society is that so many kids grow up not knowing that that's true. There's a security in knowing that your parents love each other and that their love for you is the overflow of that first love. Sometimes in our haste to love our kids, we can idolize them. Sometimes this is a source of conflict for parents. When one parent thinks that the other parent loves their kids more than they love each other. Hey, we're not talking about parenting though. But so it is with God. God is not cold or impersonal at the very heart and foundation of all things is a love story. A secure, loving, intimate, triune God, Father, Son and Spirit, head over heels in loving relationship for ages past. And this fundamentally affects how we view the idea of creation. If God was merely a singular being, what did he do before he created stuff? He would have been lonely, needy. This is the kind of God who would have created things in order to complete himself because he was deficient in some way. Maybe even to stop himself going crazy because he's so bored on his own. We might even say that that kind of God lived in eternity in a kind of lonely darkness. 
But this God was never lonely or in the dark. The reason this God created stuff was that his love overflowed in delight. This is not a God who's weak or deficient, but one who desires to expand the circle of his love and joy and share it. So look at what John says about this word in verse 3. Not only was this word with God and was God, he was with God in the beginning, verse 3, through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. I love the way John says it, positively and then negatively. This living word made everything. Nothing that has been made was made without his involvement. That means there's not a square inch in all of creation that is not his. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality behind all other reality. Think about this during Christmas. John is saying to us here that Jesus didn't begin to shine when he was born in Bethlehem. He's the light that's always been shining. He was there at creation doing the actual shining. There was never a time in eternal ages when Christ was not shining in all of his glory. There's a wonderful poetic reference to this in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. We were looking at Proverbs over the summer. And this mysterious character called Wisdom cries out, I was there. You ever say that? I was there. Wisdom cries out, I was there when he set the heavens in place. I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Listen, Christ is not just another human actor in the drama of history. He's the author of the whole play. And look at what John says down in verse 14. This word, the living word, the point, the meaning behind all things, this living word, Christ, became flesh. The birth of Christ is nothing less than this eternal, relational, joyful, creative Son of God himself becoming human. This is why it changes everything. And that is why light dawned in the darkness when he was born. And look at what John says. We have seen his glory. 
the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Oh man, I wish I had more time. I love verse 18 as well. Did you notice verse 18, the last verse that Rob read? No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who himself is God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Older translation of the Bible say that Christ was in the Father's bosom. I, what does it... So I, I, I came across one writer who described it like this. And I, I'll say it like this. When I go home, there are not many people who could come and without any announcement, lie down right next to me and invade my personal space. I don't like going to the dentist or the hairdressers because people invade my personal space. They're in my mouth, in my face. There's not many people in my life who I could lie down on the sofa and they could come and lie down next to me without saying, please could I lie down next to you? Uh, my, my wife could, my kids could. What does that mean? They are in my bosom in a sense. They're close to me. They're comfortable with me. They're intimate with me. They're face to face with me. That's what John says about Jesus here. He is in the closest relationship with the Father who is invisible, who no one's ever seen. And he comes from that place to this place and reveals his great Father. Here's the first thing I wanted to get across to you. What's the point? John is deep. And he's telling us that Christ is the point. There is love and purpose at the very foundation of the universe we live in. Life is not random or meaningless. When we fall in love with someone... It isn't just a chemical reaction that means nothing, as much as we might pretend it does. It's a pale reflection of the love and purpose that is there, underpinning all reality. Hey, we need to rattle on. What's the point? What's the problem? We're thinking in terms of solutions here. What has gone wrong and how is it put right? I want to be quick with this, but John tells us something else, maybe even more startling in verses 10 and 11. Look, well, look at verse 9 first. John says, The true light, the true light, notice that, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then in verse 10, John says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He, this one we've been talking about, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Think of this. This eternal light comes into the world that he actually made. Every breath we take is really 
sustained by him. And we crucified him. When Jesus was crucified, the crowd shouted, We will not have this man to reign over us. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas instead. This is very challenging. And here's a question. If this Christ is the center and the foundation of all things, why is it that he isn't the center and foundation often of our own lives? It isn't just that we lack information. This isn't just about ignorance. There's something willful and morally messed up in how we as a race respond to Jesus. The reason the world is in darkness is because we turn away from the light. But doesn't John say something marvelous here? Verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, to those who turned to this light and drank it in and received it and embraced it, he gave the right to become children of God. Into this rebellious and guilty world, Christ comes not to condemn, but to bring solutions. And verse 12 tells us that those who receive him, who embrace him, who believe in his name, that is to say, who believe in who he really is, they become God's children. There's a sense in which the one who said at the very beginning... Let there be light comes into the world and then says in our own hearts again for a second time, let there be light. He is the eternal Christ who provides the light of meaning and he is the saving Christ who brings the light of solutions. This is the Christ who loves us even though we're not lovable. This is the Christ who comes to die in our place, taking our guilt and shame away so that all those who turn from their sin and from their darkness and turn to him in faith can be brought into the circle of his joyful, creative, overflowing love. What's the potential? One of the things that worries me a lot, I think about this a lot, is the fact that it's possible for us to know this It is possible for us to have heard this and yet somehow still to think in our hearts it couldn't possibly be for me. 
I, I think we have an issue with feelings of unworthiness and inferiority. This is a gospel that sounds so compelling and so beautiful and yet it seems too good to be true. And for me, here in Rotherham, so many people don't believe in Jesus. So many people don't seem to follow him. How can this be true for me? And we turn away. So when I ask what's the potential, I'm really asking whether the light of this Christ can really shine here in Rotherham, not somewhere else. Here. Can this light shine in your life and in my life and in this town? Earlier on, I showed you the prophecy of Isaiah from 700 years before Christ. Years before this prophecy, shortly after the death of King Solomon, there were 12 tribes in Israel and 10 of them, after King Solomon, rebelled. The 10 kingsmen in the north rebelled against God and their king. And the two remaining tribes in the south became known as the land of Judah. And from then on, there were two lines, Judah and Israel, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. These guys, in a sense, were rebels. Two of those northern ten tribes were called Zebulun and Naphtali. They were pretty insignificant. They're rarely mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. They're never spoken of as having anything, any important role at any point in the Old Testament until Isaiah mentions them in Isaiah chapter 9. I didn't read it all, and neither did we at the beginning of the service, because no one knows what Zebulun and Naphtali is, do they? So we missed that part out. This is what Isaiah actually says. There will be no more gloom. For those who were in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way of the sea, along the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Of all the places in all the world that God could have picked for his son to live and grow up, he picked this place. Galilee, Zebulun and Naphtali. Rebellious tribes, an area that had nothing going for it at all. Do you know what people said about this place? You know it. When, when they found out that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, they said, nothing ever good comes from Nazareth. I can imagine people saying that about Rotherham. People move away from Rotherham. They don't come to Rotherham. Nothing ever good came from Nazareth. That's where he grew up. It was in Galilee that Jesus performed his first miracle. 
It was in Galilee that he selected most of his 12 disciples. It was in Galilee that Jesus called John, who was a fisherman. Jesus' best friend. And here we are, reading his book 2,000 years later. It was in Galilee that Jesus spent most of his time preaching and teaching and healing and doing various miracles. Jesus and his light literally shone in the darkest possible place. What I want to say to you is that even the way the light of Christ comes into the world should encourage you and me to trust his grace. If Jesus could come and shine in the darkness of Galilee, he can surely shine in the darkness of Rotherham. What's the potential? I'll tell you, with Christ, it's huge. It's huge. The darkness isn't a problem for him. That means that your life here in this place today is significant and precious. Christ, in his mercy, has even established a little outpost of his church here in Rotherham where the light of Christ we trust is preached, proclaimed, however feebly, the light of Christ shines here in Rotherham. This afternoon, my burden, I, I want you to see something of who Jesus really is. I want you to see something of what he has actually done for you. And I want to encourage you I want to encourage you to trust him. His birth changes everything. Jesus didn't come to turn the Christmas lights on. He himself is the light. Let's pray, shall we?